Um, so this actually marks today our one-year anniversary here at Grace Claremont. Uh, that's worth celebrating. So it's 364 days ago, I guess tomorrow is technically our one-year anniversary, but 364 days ago, uh, we had our first service here with dim lights, and uh, we didn't have any lights, actually. We had these guys right here shining over the uh, congregation to be able to give us light, because we didn't have any overhang lights. Um, and so it was a treat if you were here for the first Sunday. Um, thankfully, our ops guys, the guys who set up and tear down, have made this place so much better than it was that first Sunday. Um, but we are here. We just had Edison lights up here. I don't know why I'm talking about the lights so much. I didn't plan on that. Let's move on. Anyway, it's our one-year anniversary, and we're thrilled. Um, we're the newest campus here at Grace. It's been incredible for me the last few weeks, just thinking back over the last year, looking at God's faithfulness, seeing what he's done, the fruit that he's brought, the people that he's brought, the way that he's grown this community for the glory of his name and the joy of his people. It's been incredible, and I'm excited. I cannot wait to see what 2018 has in store. So for our anniversary, we actually have a cake outside in the lobby. I maybe should have waited till after the service to tell you that, so don't leave. I know if you have to go to the bathroom and you walk back in here with a piece of chocolate cake, I'll know exactly what you did. Um, so anyway, we'll have cake out there afterwards. Grab some. Some of it's chocolate, some of it's vanilla. You'll be able to figure it out. Anyway, it's out there for you. Uh, so we are thrilled, um, and I've got a fly in my face as well. Um, just don't pay attention to the fly unless I'm not going to be able to kill it. Let's just move on. Man, it's been an interesting first two minutes of the sermon. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so it's been one year, and we're so excited. Glad you guys, as Andrew said, have survived the holidays, have made it back here. You're surviving the sub-freezing temperatures here in Florida. Um, it, it's incredible. I'm sure you've all seen the meme going around of how Floridians prepare for a Category 5 hurricane. It's the Spartans from the 300, like, standing ready for it to come. And then the other picture shows Floridians preparing for sub-freezing temperatures, and it's the Cowardly Lion from The Wizard of Oz. So anyway, I'm glad you guys have braved the cold, had made it through sickness. My wife is actually down. She's been out the last couple days, so I've been a single parent, uh, and I now respect all of the mothers out there who have to get their children ready on Sunday mornings and here. That is a feat that man has ne'er seen before, so it, I have great respect for you guys. Um, but anyway, so glad y'all are here. So we're continuing on through our study in the Gospel of John. So we are right in John 15. This is in the middle of a section, so we're dropping right back in, kind of get us caught back up where we are in the gospel. Uh, we're dropping right into the middle of a conversation. So Jesus is in a room with his now 11 disciples. Judas has just left at the end of chapter 14. He's in a room with his 11 disciples. And this is the night before he's killed. Um, so this is the last night that Jesus is there uh, with his disciples. This is on the Thursday of Passion Week, uh, right before Good Friday. And he is giving his disciples kind of these parting instructions. So this, this whole conversation is known as the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. And we're jumping right back into the, beginning, into the middle of it. So it began in chapter 13, and it runs all the way up until he is betrayed at the end of uh, chapter 16. This is the largest chunk of Jesus' teaching continuously that we find in any of the Gospels. It was around probably five hours that Jesus was there. This is condensed and kind of gives us the highlights. But these are Jesus' parting words to his closest friends. These are his final instructions to the men that he knows will carry his message from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the ends of the earth. It's the reason, this conversation in part is the reason why we're here this morning. It's because Jesus gave them instructions on how they are to go forward and live. And so it's a great text for us to drop back into now as we begin a new year. 
and we begin all of our resolutions that more than likely we've already blown, right? We're like six days in, so there's no chance we're still going to the gym every day. Uh, The foods that we have said we would never eat have tasted so good, and we are right back to it. And so we look at the year coming up, and we go, what do we want this year to be? We have goals, we have dreams, we have resolutions. And so what I want us to do for these next five weeks as we look at John chapters 15 and 16 in this sermon series um, called Resolution, I want us to look at spiritually what should our resolutions be. What should the trajectory of our lives look like and be on the forefront of our minds in the year 2018? And in particular, if you're here and continuing just to check us out, these are going to be great sermons because I, my hope as well is to give us a trajectory for us as a church. What I hope and what I've prayed in the last few weeks that I've prepared for these messages have prayed that this would be our heart moving forward. That these next five weeks, these next two chapters, John 15 and 16, would mark us as a church community. So it's a great way for us to be able to see as well who we are, what's going to matter as us, and prayerfully, where is God going to take us as Grace Claremont in year two of our existence, in the year 2018. So with that being said, let's look at John 15. We'll be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the larger numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller ones. We'll be in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. If you've got uh, one of the Bibles next to you, it's on page 768. It's not on page 768? 771. It's on page 771. Thank you, Miss Teacher Ashley Plate. Um, on page 771. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. That's our gift uh, to you. So on page 771, John 15, 1 through 11, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you would bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So as we look at this passage, there's so much depth to it. The way I want to look at it this morning is I want to look at the three different images that Jesus gives to us as he's describing what our relationship to him, to the Father, and us are. The three images that he gives us is he gives us a vine dresser, the vine, and the branches. The vine dresser, the vine, and the branches. So we're going to look at each of those images and see how it is it relates to us and what we're supposed to do with that in this year, 2018. So first, the vine dresser. The vine dresser. Who's the vine dresser here in this passage? We see in verse 1 that Jesus says, My father is the vine dresser. Or some translations say, My father is the gardener. 
So the Father is the one, if you see this, kind of imagine this vine that's growing, there's branches growing off of it. The Father is the gardener, the vine dresser who comes and begins to prune and make sure it looks okay, that it's not getting out of hand, that it's not growing and overtaking the rest of the garden. Right, so I'm not, I'm not a gardener by any means. I did grow a pineapple in my front yard this past year, though. Um, accidentally, we bought the house and thought we had these nice little green shrubs. And about six months in, this thing started popping out the top of it. And we're like, that looks like a pineapple. And about a month later, we go, wow, that's a pineapple. And sure enough, now it's ripe and we ate it for Christmas. We had our Christmas pineapple. Um, so I guess I kind of am a gardener then. I take it back. Um, <clears throat> but one of, the, one of the other things we have in our yards, we have these little shrubs. And these shrubs will have, they'll kind of grow consistently, but every now and then they'll have these long branches that will shoot off of them. They just look terrible. So what I have to do is I have to go get my trimmer, go and just shape it up. Cut off these ones that are just all gangly and just pointing off every which direction. And I have to shape it up and make it into the image that I want it to be. Well, friends, that's not much different than what the Father is doing, the image that Jesus gives us here. The Father stands in his garden as he looks at this vine, and he sees in us these vines that are growing and beginning to shoot off in other directions, and he begins to prune those. And he's beginning to conform the vine, us, into a specific image. He's trying to shape us and mold us and prune us, and the things that don't look like what he wants, he cuts off, and he prunes. And so it's interesting. I want to kind of pause there and press in a little bit Because I think often in our lives, we can mistake God's pruning for God's punishment. We can think that sometimes the hard things in our life or the hard people in our lives are maybe a result of God coming down and bringing his judgment on us. But friends, often, if not all the time, that's an image of God pruning us, beginning to insert things and situations into our lives so that he can deal with the branches that are pushing off every which way, bringing out these things in our hearts that we have to look at and address as he begins to cut those off and prune us and mold us into the image that he wants. God molding us is not God being mad at us. And we have to know that. God molding us is not God being mad at us. God is shaping us into the image that he wants, particularly he's shaping us into the image of his son. Jesus Christ. This is what we see in Romans 8 as Paul writes one of the more popular verses in the Bible, Romans 8:28. We love to quote it. That we know that all things for that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? We we know that and we hear it and there's great encouragement there as there should be. We know that all things. Paul's not leaving any room there. He's saying every single moment in a Christian's life Notice he does say it's all those who, um, who love God. So it's not every person, it's those who love God. For every Christian, every moment in your life is working for your good. God is doing that. Friends, there is amazing comfort there. That Paul is saying both the good and the bad, God is using those to shape you and mold you. Because the very next verse in 29, well, what is good then? How do we define that good? He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That that's God's definition of good. That as we begin to be molded and shaped and conformed in the image of Jesus, friends, that's a good thing. And God is working every single moment in your life, the good, the easy, and the joyful, and the difficult, and the painful, and the, and the sad. Every single moment he is using for your good to prune you, 
to conform you to the image of his son, to shape you and mold you. God is divinely active in every second of your life. He is not passive. He is not sitting back. He cares and he is involved. And friends, he's shaping you into the image of his son. He's pruning you. Do not get confused with pruning and punishment. And God is introducing things into your lives to prune you. Right? Often what typically happens is we're blind to the pruning that needs to be taken place in our hearts. And so God will introduce something into our hearts to show us, uh, yeah, see that right there? We got to deal with that. To reveal to us the branches that are hanging off every which way. And often I think what, I know for me, it can be easy to look at my life and begin to want to push out difficult circumstances or even difficult people. But friends, God has brought them into your life to reveal something in your heart that he wants to deal with. This is one of the things in marriage counseling that I'll always talk through with people. I will say, listen, you've got to understand that you will be married and you will begin to have arguments that you've never had before. And your knee-jerk response will be to point your finger and say, this is your fault. I never felt these things before you came into my life. And friends, that's whenever, as people begin to point fingers, that's when things begin to deteriorate. But what God is doing is he's brought you together, not to show you that they're bringing something into your life, but they're revealing something that's always been in your heart. And God is bringing it forward to say, listen, you've got to deal with this branch. We have to prune it. We have to begin to conform you to the image of my son. God brought your spouse into your life to show you just how dark your heart is. This is why we are dealing with these things is we always want to point our fingers outside. As he's bearing this fruit, wanting to grow this fruit in us, he's pruning us. And you think about what fruit that may be. Well, we just look at later in the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. This is the fruit that God wants to see in our lives as he prunes us to see more of it. And let me just tell you, if you want your love to increase, that does not happen just by loving people who are easy to love. It happens whenever God brings people into our lives. Listen, God is using the people that annoy you to the most to grow your love. That's what he's doing. If, if we just hung around people that were just easy, we ain't growing at all. But in every single one of our lives, God is introducing these things to reveal to us the things that we need to deal with. He's pruning us in order to produce more fruit, that our lives would be marked by that fruit, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness. Does that mark your life? Does that mark your home, your parenting, your friendships, patience, kindness, gentleness? These are not suggestions. Friends, these are the fruit of the Spirit. And when the Spirit dwells in us, and notice when Paul writes this in Galatians, he doesn't use plural, he doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. He uses a singular word, fruit, to show that when the Spirit dwells in us, these things all happen. We don't get to pick and choose. Now, they happen in varying degrees. We're not all perfectly loving. Some of us may have a different uh, degrees of different fruit, but they all grow. This is what the Spirit does. Is God is pruning us for these things to grow. And we see as he is pruning us, he prunes us to be able to produce more fruit. He wants that fruit to continue to grow. But if it's not producing fruit, what does he do? Look back at verse 2, that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Or later in verse 6, 
And if anyone does not abide in Jesus, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So if there's not fruit in our lives, Jesus is saying, listen, you're not even connected to the vine. And you will be taken away and thrown into the fire. You're not even a Christian if your works do not show that. And so Jesus is putting a huge emphasis here on our fruit. If you produce fruit, he will prune you to produce more. If you don't, you'll be taken away and burned in the fire. So if we're reading through this, and the natural question becomes, well, how can we produce fruit? It seems important. How can we produce fruit in our lives? That gets us then to the next image we see, the vine. We grow fruit, Jesus tells us, by abiding in the vine. Look again at verse 4. He says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. For I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus here now gives the image. He says, okay, my father is the vine dresser. He is pruning, looking for fruit. Pruning those producing fruit to produce more. Taking those that don't produce fruit, gathering them, throwing them in the fire. He now shifts and says, and I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser, and I am the true vine. And the only way for you to produce fruit is to be connected to me. That's it. Listen, I don't know if you've ever tried to run an appliance without plugging it into the wall first. It doesn't go well. Often I'll sit there and try to figure out why is my coffee machine not working? I've pressed all the right buttons. It's on the right settings. After about five minutes, I look. It's not plugged into the wall. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. But friends, I worry for a lot of us in our Christian lives, we try to produce fruit in our lives without being connected to the source, without being connected to the vine. There is no way for us to bear fruit apart from being connected to Christ. None. You hear what the words that Jesus says here. He says, you have to abide in me and I have to abide in you because a branch can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. And you can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. So Jesus is saying, listen, you ever seen a branch cut off from a tree sitting on the ground just growing bananas? You haven't because that's not how it works. It has to be connected to the tree. It has to be connected to the vine. It has to be plugged in. He says the same with you. If you want to produce any kind of spiritual fruit in your life, you have to be connected to me. You have to abide in me, and I have to abide in you. Jesus is the source of all of our fruitfulness, that all spiritual good originates in his pulsating life as it flows out of him and into those who are connected to him. And so it's one reason why here, one of the things that marks us at grace, we say that we are Christ-centered, what that means is we want our sermons, we want our songs, we want our prayers, we want our kids programming, we want our small groups, we want our relationships, we want everything to be centered on Jesus. And we do that because of what we read here, that apart from him, we can do nothing. You hear how much room he gives us in John fifteen five. He says, whoever abides in me, I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we believe that? Do we live that way? That apart from abiding in Christ, we can do nothing. I think if we believe that day to day, our lives would look drastically different. And how we lived 
and what we chose to spend our time with, and it would drive and shape everything that we do. That verse is a verse I actually have on a plaque here on this pulpit. To remind myself, I am a branch, he is the vine, and apart from him, I can do nothing. It doesn't matter how great and organized my sermon may be. It doesn't matter how many killer illustrations I may have and how funny, how funny my jokes are this day, how great the lighting is, or how uh, wonderful and relevant the application is. Friends, unless I am abiding in Christ, there is nothing that comes from these sermons. There's nothing that comes from these services. And I have to see that and remind myself every day because my tendency is to fall back and rely on my strength. That's my temptation. And so I have to remember that there is nothing I can do apart from him. Whether that's preaching or whether that's missions, locally or globally. We just sent off one of our missionaries December 29th, Sonia, back to Nairobi over in Africa. And as she goes, the, rem- the reminder that there is nothing she can do apart from Christ and abiding in Him. We're getting ready to send Ryan and Melissa back to Africa in February coming up. And that reminder that I'll continue to press to them, there is nothing that they can do over there of any eternal good, producing any kind of fruit apart from Christ. Abide in Him. But even beyond, beyond that, and a little bit more into our lives, friends, your parenting and raising your children. There is nothing that you can do of any eternal value in their life apart from Christ. And understand that your role as a parent is not just to modify their behavior. Your role as you step into their lives is to be an ambassador of God on their behalf. As you step in and you are an ambassador representing the king in their life. And your hope and your goal is to to begin to show that image to them of what their heavenly parent is like, what their heavenly father is like. And praying that Jesus would go and he would draw them to himself and he would save them. And listen, there is nothing you can do. There is no parenting book you can read. There is no disciplinary structure you can put in place that will produce any eternal good apart from Christ. Run to him. Rely on him. Abide in him. It's the only way that fruit will come around. Or even just in our own lives and in our relationships and in our friendships, if you want to be more patient, if you want to be more gentle, if you want to be more loving, it's not going to happen on its own. You can't will yourself to be a more patient person. You'll begin to become impatient about how long it's taken to become patient. It won't happen. We have to rely on Him for that fruit to be produced. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And so we see if we want to bear this fruit, we have to abide in Christ and let Christ abide in us. Those are the words that he uses. So then my question becomes, well, how do we do that? What does that mean? What does it mean to abide in Jesus and for Jesus to abide in us? It seems to be important. The Father is the vine dresser looking at fruit in people's lives. If it produces fruit, he prunes it to produce more. If it doesn't, it's cast away and thrown into the fire. Well, how does it produce fruit? It's connected to the vine. It abides in Jesus. Well, how? How can we then, as disciples, abide in Christ? And I'm grateful Jesus doesn't just leave it in kind of this ethereal kind of metaphor, just abide in Jesus. What does that mean? What am I supposed to do tomorrow morning? How do I abide in him? Jesus answers actually both of those things, how we abide in him and how he abides in us. He defines both of those later on. Look at verse 7. As he's talking to them, he says, If you abide in me, 
And he changes something here. He doesn't say, and I abide in you. He says, if, I, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So he changes here. He doesn't say, if, if I, the vine, abide in you. He says, if my words abide in you. So Jesus here shifts and he's saying, you want to know what it means for me to abide in your life? If my words abide in your life. For the disciples, it was the messages that they'd heard, the sermons that they'd heard, the teachings that they'd sat under. His words abiding in them. But for us, we don't have him around to teach us anymore. So where do we go to get his words? The words of eternal life. It's in this book where we find the words of God spoken to us. And we see this entire book is pointing to Jesus. And so our goal then, if we want Jesus to abide in us, is to let his words abide in us. And that sounds overly simplistic, and it's not just a silver bullet where if you go, okay, I'll just wake up and read a verse every day and I'll be good to go. Because what it is not saying is if you just begin to read this, maybe even memorize it, then you're going to be good to go. Because we have to see, even in the first century, the antagonists of the New Testament had memorized more Bible than you will forget in your entire life, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the religious elite who had memorized the Old Testament. They had read it, they'd memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized it. Right? We have a hard time getting through numbers. Right? We get there, we open up our reading plan, Genesis 1. We're like, here we go, through the Bible this year, get the numbers. We're like, man, I'm just going to skip to 3 John and just get out of here. This is ridiculous. They had memorized it. But the words, although it abided in their mind, it did not abide in their heart. And this is what Jesus is pressing here. Is he's saying, don't just read my words. Don't just even memorize my words or t- have a Bible study in the original languages. Let them abide in you. Let them find their home in your heart. Let them begin to shape you. Let them begin to lead you into more and more joy in your life. That you would absolutely, it begins with reading. We can't hear God speak unless we read this book objectively. And we can't memorize and uh, meditate on and abide in this unless we are first going and reading this. So it begins with reading, but it does not end there. And so that's what Jesus says. If you want me to abide in you, let my words abide in you. Okay, well, that's what it means for Jesus to abide in us. What does it mean for us to abide in him? Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So again, here, you hear he changes the words a little bit. He doesn't say abide in me. He says, abide in my love. Remain in my love. Well, again, what does that mean? Verse 10, he colors it out even more. He says, if you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. So he gives it to us really plainly. He says, if you want to abide in me, obey me. Follow me. That's how you abide in me. That's how you abide in my love. If you obey the things that I've commanded you. And so we hear that really, in essence, as Jesus says, that you have to abide in me and let me abide in you. It's really no different than him just saying, listen to what I have to say and obey. Listen and obey. If you do that, then you will abide in me and I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. And we may go, well, 
it seems like Jesus is here connecting love and obedience. You hear him in verses 9 and 10. He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And I don't think we often think about the connection between obedience and love, about keeping commands and love. But Jesus doesn't make any bones about it here. He is very explicit. Say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John picks up on this theme in 1 John as well, that the two go hand in hand. But it's important because what some people do is they'll trist this, and this is where legalism begins to crop up, is they will put all of their focus in on obedience. And they will skip past where our hearts are. And so listen, our obedience doesn't make our relationship with Jesus, but it does mark it. Our obedience with him does not make our relationship, but it does mark it. If we are not following him, obeying him, then friends, we may not know him. If we are not keeping his commands, then we are not abiding in his love. We are not abiding in him. We are not listening and following, listening and obeying. So this is our command then for this year. I think simply put, Jesus is just laying out what it means to be a disciple. That if you want to be a disciple, if you want to follow me, listen and obey. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. And so that's what I want to put out kind of simply. I think sometimes we can overcomplicate what discipleship is. I think it's just following Jesus. How do we follow him? We listen to what he says and we obey. And that may sound cold. It may sound rote. But I want to ask the question in 2018 as we look and say, okay, one of my resolutions is to follow Jesus, to abide in him, to listen and obey. I want to ask the question, are you listening? Are you listening? Have you opened this book to begin to hear from him? Because one thing I want to kind of distinguish here is what it means for God to speak to us. I think often in church culture today, I think we've gotten a little sloppy with using language when it comes to this. And I want to just kind of make a few distinctions between God speaking and God leading us or prompting us or guiding us. I think often we kind of just put that all under the same umbrella and go, oh, God spoke to me. God spoke to me and told me to move to Central Florida. I had some, some, some people that um, have raised, were raised in the church and love the Lord that will say things like that. And I just, I hear that and I go, man, like, what kind of relationship do you have with God? Because I don't, I don't hear him. Well, what does that sound like for God to speak to you, for him to tell you things? And I think as I've sat back and begin to kind of um, diagnose what it is that people mean, I think what they mean is they feel God leading them or prompting them or guiding them, which God absolutely does. The Spirit in us is prompting us into specific decisions, circumstances, conversations to have with people, um, ways to, to um, um, uh, move around, and all of that. I think God is very active. But here's the thing, whenever God leads, prompts, and guides us, it's very subjective. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Is this absolutely God, or is this my own preference? Or is it the burrito I ate yesterday? Which one of these is it? And so I'm a little bit more cautious with, with, with saying, oh yeah, God spoke to me, because it's not as objective. And so often, whenever I feel like the Spirit's beginning to lead me, I'll go and get counsel from other people, because the same Spirit that dwells in me dwells in them. I will run it by them, godlier people who the fruit of the Spirit is more evidence in their life, and I'll run it through them, and they will be able to weigh if this is the Spirit or the burrito. Because surprisingly, those two things are often more similar than we would like to give them credit for. But friends, God does still speak objectively. And he speaks through this book right here. 
And part of my concern is whenever we begin to kind of a catch-all say God's speaking into each of these different situations, we begin to lessen the importance of this book in our lives today. Because this is the way objectively that we hear God's voice, that without question we hear him speak. We hear his words. So let's go and let these words abide in us. Want to know what God's will is? He lays it out for us here. You want to know what the message of the gospel is? It is crystal clear here. You want to know where you need to work next year? Uh, not as clear here. But there are some principles you can pull from here to be able to help guide you and direct you along the way as you preach, I mean, as you, as you pray and begin to make those decisions. You know, it's incredible. As you look through the book of Acts, as the gospels begin to break through um, Jerusalem and throughout the entirety of the world, these are some of the most important decisions the church has made throughout the book of Acts, as the gospels begin to go global. And in what I would say is the most important chapter in the book of Acts, Acts 15, it's the hinge really of the whole Bible in which it's the, asking the question, do you have to be Jewish to be Christian? If you come in, do you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian? That's really the question that's put forward. And there's this Jerusalem council and the apostles get together and elders get together and they debate this question and they get to the end of it and they go, if you go and read Acts 15, 29, they go, well, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and it seemed good to us that people would not have to do that, that you would not have to be Jewish to be Christian. And I sit there and I go, man, that's such a huge decision. And that's the language that you use. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and it seemed good to us. That there isn't always these like cloud moment, God speaking in every decision of our life. It's okay sometimes to go, you know, it seemed like the Holy Spirit was leading me here and it seemed good to me to take this job or to move here. That's, that's biblical. That's very okay to say. So anyway, that was a tangent that I wasn't planning on talking about at all. So moving on. Um, so God's speaking. This is how he speaks to us today. So are we listening? Are we listening? So at the very end here, what I want to say is just a few really practical things. Because I know for me, reading the Bible consistently has just been one of the biggest struggles in my life always growing up. I'm not a structured guy. I'm like a fly by the seat of my pants. Every day is a new opportunity. Let's see what's going to happen. It's a blank canvas. My wife is the opposite of that, which God has, has pruned us a lot in those relationships. Um, and so I know it's hard and I know it's a struggle. So what I want to do is we look in 2018, I want us to resolve to let God's words abide in us, to let Jesus's words abide in us, that we would listen and obey. So how do we listen? We read, we read, we read. We begin then to meditate on what we read. We begin to memorize on some of these things that are standing out. We begin to hide those things in our hearts. As David said in Psalm 19, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And we begin to hide and abide in his words, let them abide in us. So how? How do we read? right? It's overwhelming. Right? Most of us haven't read a book over 300 pages since 11th grade. And so what's it like to read a book with 1,900 pages? It's overwhelming. So just here at the end, just a number of really practical things I want to end with um, is to lay out a few different plans for us to try to read through the Bible this year consistently. All right, first, I know it's sometimes overwhelming to think through a year-long Bible reading plan, Right Again, we get like four days in. It's like, wow, I've missed a day. Now I have to, it's just, it's over. It's done. It's burdensome. So the first thing I want to suggest to read the Bible consistently 
is to just take whatever passage is being preached the next Sunday here at church and just read through it every day. So, for instance, this past week, if you had done that, just open up your Bible and read John 15, 1 through 11, every day. Begin to read through it. Meditate on it. It's 11 verses. If you miss a day, you know what? It's the same chapter the next day. You can go and read it. You're not overwhelmed with guilt and burden. And that does a number of things. One, I think rightfully so, it begins to anchor our devotional life to the life of our local church. I think that's healthy. The, the, pre, the, the text that's being preached on, we begin to read through it and we prepare for what we're going to hear. You will get more out of a sermon each week if you've been reading through the passage every week coming up to it. And you begin to have questions. You begin to have insights. And you go, oh, is he going to talk about this? Listen, if it's confusing, I probably won't, just a heads up. Um, is he going to talk about this? Is he not? And we begin to prepare our hearts, and you'll be able to take more away on a Sunday. And so just, that's the first thing. Just read through the passage being preached. Secondly, if you go, okay, that's been good. I want to kind of add a little bit more to that. One of the things that we did in our latest magazine uh, on page 15, it has each of our passages on here for the next two sermon series leading all the way up to Easter. And it has not only the passage we'll be preaching on, it has other texts throughout the scriptures that correspond with that. And so I tried, I went through and was selecting these. I tried to be able to bring in both New Testament and Old Testament passages. So, for instance, this week, John 15, um, 1 through 11, we would have been reading Isaiah 5, Isaiah 27, or Psalm 80, which Wayne read earlier. As we read about this vine in the Old Testament, and the vine that was described in the Old Testament was the nation of Israel, but they kept falling. The vine that was described was rotten. And Jesus now enters in here in John 15. He says, that vine kept rotting, but I am the true vine. If you connect to me, then you will bear fruit. So if you want a little bit more here on 15, you can take other passages as well to be able to read through those. Next, if you want even more, here is a uh, systematic plan to be able to read the Bible either in four years, two years, or one year. All right, it's like an accordion, so don't be overwhelmed. Uh, so this is a little bookmark, and it has four columns on here. So if you go, okay, I want to give this a shot. I want to try to read through the Bible in four years. Then you just read one of those columns every single day. It's just a chapter of the Bible. So beginning here, Genesis 1, read Genesis 1 today. Tomorrow, Genesis 2. Next day, Genesis 3, so on and so forth. At the end of four years, you will have read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament and Psalms twice. If you go, okay, I think I can handle a little bit more, and you want to read through the Bible in two years, you can do two columns every day. So Genesis 1 and Matthew 1. So one of the things I like about this reading plan is it takes different chunks throughout the Bible. Uh, so it's not just, hey, read four chapters in Genesis. It's read Genesis 1 and Matthew 1. Or if you want to really take on a challenge and read it this year, uh, you can do all four columns every day. Genesis 1, Matthew 1, Ezra 1, and Acts 1. And in the course of a year, we'll read through the Old Testament once, the New Testament and the Psalms twice. So these are little bookmarks. It's uh, a man named Robert Murray McSheen is the guy who um, did this reading plan. He passed away. He's a he was a pastor in uh, Scotland or Ireland, and, I, and of course, I would get those confused, and we have someone from one of those here today, and I feel awful about not being able to know what the difference is. Anyway, I know one's in Ireland, and one had to do with Braveheart. Um, so uh, anyway, Robert Murray McSheen was from one of those, and um, uh, so he wrote this plan for his church. He passed away at the age of 29 when he was a pastor, uh, but it's a great reading plan. We have these on the info desk uh, out as you're walking out. So pick up one of these as well. Um, so grab a magazine, grab one of these, 
um, make sure that we have some sort of consistency, that we are reading consistently and intentionally, trying to let his words abide in us, whether that's six verses or whether it's four chapters. My concern is not how much you read. It's how much of it gets into your heart. And we have to understand that. I'll close with this quote from uh, Thomas Watson. He was an um, old Puritan pastor in a, his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. One, one, one of the best book titles I've ever read. He said this, he said, Remember, it's not hasty reading, but serious meditating upon holy and heavenly truths that make them prove sweet and profitable to the soul. It's not the bee's touching of the flower which gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower which draws out the sweet. So it's not he who reads the most, but he who meditates the most, who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christians. So friends, listen, it is not about how much you can read. It's about how much of it is getting into you. His words abiding in you. So if it's overwhelming, take six verses and let it begin to get into your heart. And then we'll begin to see fruit grow as God continues to prune us. Because we see all of this as we listen and obey. It's not just cold. It's not just rote obedience. Oh, we just listen and obey and follow like a robot. But no, look at what Jesus' two concerns are in this passage. He's saying this. saying, let my words abide in you and you keep my commandments. His two concerns we see um, in verse, uh, let's see, in one of these verses, in verse 8. He's concerned, he says, by this my Father is glorified. He's concerned with the Father's glory. And in verse 11, he says, I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus' concerns here are the glory of the Father and the joy of his disciples. And he's saying, if you follow me, if you abide in me, if you listen and obey, it's there that you'll find the greatest expression of joy in your life. You will begin to finally live the way that you were designed to live, following living fruitfully in the image of God, following the true God, the true vine, Jesus Christ. So Jesus inviting us into a fullest expression of joy that we can experience in this world, to follow him, to listen and obey, to let his words abide in us, to obey his commandments. So at the start of this year, let's resolve together to do just that, to abide in Christ and to let his words abide in us to the glory of the Father and for the joy of his people. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for being the true vine, the one who has come and lived perfectly in ways that we could not. God, help us to be able to get connected to you, to be centered on Christ, to abide in him, to remain in him, and to let his words abide in us, that we would listen and we would obey. God, the enemy will do everything he can to drive us away from this book, God, but give us in your spirit a desire towards it. Help us to be able to practice self-discipline and self-control and make changes in our lives that we need to, to be able to get into this book and reading it consistently, intentionally, and let it abide in us. We love you and we thank you for your son and for saving us. In his name I pray, amen.